Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. Welcome, all you guys that are watching online. Thank you for tuning in, as always. Uh, you might not be aware of this, but we have a large and growing uh, online community that stays engaged, uh, consistently over 500 folks that tune in and watch our service online from, I think, 18 different states consistently and eight different countries. So, uh, Welcome. We're glad that you guys are here, and thank you. Uh, it feels like it's the first Sunday of the new year because we're back to you know kind of our regular, uh, regularly regular programming schedule. I don't know whatever you want to call that, uh, but we're back to our normal uh, two services, and um, we're back to uh, back to Romans. But it's been a great uh, kickoff to the new year already here at Coastal. If you were here last Sunday, uh, either in person or online, you know we kicked off the year. We baptized seven people last Sunday uh, in our. In our in our single service, and um, yeah, that's worth celebrating. It was a great, uh, great day. And then yesterday, we had our first uh, Saturday serve uh, of the new year, and we had tons of volunteers and and uh, lots of projects, just loving and serving our community. It's just been a great, uh, a great kickoff. Uh, Pastor Scott mentioned our Christmas offering, and uh, we've already done some great things with it. And if you were here yesterday uh, for Saturday serve, you know that we already purchased. Um, uh, we got our, our new fifteen passenger van. And um, so I was driving that yesterday, took some volunteers uh, out to our tailgate party, uh, those that weren't afraid to join me in the van. And um, uh, But we're excited about that. So by the way, the van is not for us so much as it is for us to go out into the community and to bring people to Coastal. And a lot of the, the places that we're serving on a regular basis, like Charleston Vets or Patriot Villas or Joseph Floyd Manor. And so if you are interested in being one of the drivers uh, you know, for the van, see Chris Jones. Talk to him today, and uh, just know that we will be doing a background check on your driving record. So um, anyway, but uh, it's, it's, I'm excited. I'm excited to be back, jumping back into uh, Romans today, a series that we kicked off uh, the fall with this past year. And uh, today we're in a brand new section, and this section marks a major turning point uh, in the book of, of Romans. Uh, we're in chapters 9 through 11. That's where we're going to be for the next, like, five weeks. Uh, in February, the weekend right before Valentine's Day, uh, we're going to begin a new series, uh, take a, another little break from Romans. We're going to do a relationship series, um, and that weekend's just going to be a lot of fun uh, because it's also going to be Life Group Sunday, Life Group's kickoff. Uh, we're having a daddy-daughter dance uh, that Friday of that weekend, so be on the lookout for all of that. But let me just take a few minutes and review where we've been so far in Romans. So, if you remember, if you were with us, chapters 1 through 3 were all about the sinfulness of man. You know, the state of the reality of, of the world and the sinfulness of man that we all fall short. Uh, chapters 4 through 5 uh, then provided the solution for our sin that we are justified by faith. We talked about justification. Uh, by trusting in Christ, we are then made right with God. And then in chapters 6 through 8, is all about the process then of daily becoming righteous through the Holy Spirit's work in our life through something called sanctification. So we talked about justification, sanctification, and then all of that culminates with what many people believe is one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8, where we are reminded that there is absolutely nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God. Now, 
Back in November, we as a church made it all the way through Romans 7. However, we are saving Romans chapter 8, that great, great chapter, for our Easter series this year. Okay, so we're kind of jumping just one chapter, but don't, don't worry, we will come back to it, and I'm excited about our Easter series this year. But like I said, chapter 9 here marks a turning point in the letter. Because all of a sudden, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul turns the discussion to how Israel fits into the overall plan of God. Now, I know you might, you know, you're going to read through this, you know, uh, read through the book of Romans, and you come to this, and you're thinking, well, what in the world does any of this have to do with me? And I think it has a lot to do with us. And so I want us to talk about it. And so he talks about how they fit into the overall plan of God, and I think it also addresses how we fit into the overall plan of God. But he's going to address some questions that he knew that his Jewish readers would have when they received this letter. So remember, at the very beginning of the letter, Paul affirmed the fact that he, even though he is Jewish, that is his personal heritage, that God called him to be an apostle uh, to the Gentiles, to share the good news of the gospel uh, with the Gentile people and to call them to obedient faith. Now, one of the questions, though, that's going to come up in the mind of a Jew who's going to read this letter is, okay, Paul, does that mean now that God has set aside his plan and his people, Israel? You know, are the Jewish people just being written off now? And so is salvation for the Gentiles alone and not for the Jewish people? So great questions. Those are questions they would naturally have. And so in chapters 9 through 11, Paul begins the process of answering those questions. Now, the bottom line that you got to get, though, is that Paul cared deeply for the Jewish people, of which he was one. He cared deeply for his own people who were not yet saved. In fact, that's how chapter 9 opens. Look at uh, verses 1 through 3, if you're following along on the screen, at home, or on your outline. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness, my conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. Listen to this. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. So stop there for just a moment. So again, Paul's heart is hurting for his people. I mean, he loves them. He's one of them. And he's devastated over there, for the most part, their rejection of Jesus. And so he's deeply burdened for their salvation. He says here that it causes him great sorrow and unending, unceasing anguish in his heart. And you read something like that, and this is, this is what I think, and, I, and maybe you might think the same thing. You can't help but ask this question. What about me? I mean, do we as a people, do we as a church, and do you as an individual carry a burden like that for the people that you know in your life, you know, your family, your friends, you know, as we say here at Coastal, the people in your sphere of influence where you live, work, parent, or play, who don't know Jesus, do you have a burden for them? Does it break your heart? Does it hurt your heart? Do you have a burden for the lost? Are you broken enough to pray for them on a regular basis, to invite them to church, you know, to be willing to do whatever it takes short of sin to share your story, to share your faith, 
and uh, share the love of Jesus with them, to invite them to a place like Coastal where you know, man, they come here, they're going to see Jesus, they're going to experience him, and they're going to hear the good news of the gospel. In fact, today inside your, your bulletin, there's these little, uh, you're invited cards, if they haven't all fallen on the, on the floor by now. Um, those are not for you, you're here. Those are for you to take and to just to give to somebody. You know, keep them in your wallet, keep them in your car, you know, keep them in your pocket. You know, today after church, you go out to lunch somewhere, you leave a very generous tip, and you leave a you're invited to Coastal card. If you're not generous in your tip, don't leave a you're invited to Coastal card, okay? But are you burdened for people? So Paul was, in fact, so much so that he makes a statement in the rest of verse 3 that is just, that blows me away. I mean, is unparalleled in all of the Bible. Listen to what he says. He says, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Man, like that blows me away. He is so burdened for his people that he is willing to lay down his life eternally if that would lead to their salvation. Now, do you get what he's saying here? Don't miss this. He's basically saying, I'm willing to go to hell if that gets them to heaven. Do you feel that same burden for the people in your life? Or are you just so busy, you know, checking things off your, your calendar and your schedule and just get in the rat race of just, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over that you don't see people the way God does? Lost and without hope, without Christ. So Paul loves his people and he feels a burden for them. But also he loves them and he feels a burden for them because he's reminded of their, their special relationship that they've experienced with God. Look at verses four and five. He says, they are the people of Israel chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them, gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him, receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, are their ancestors. And listen to this. Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And then I love this. He's talking about Jesus here. And he is God. He is God. The one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. By the way, when you got some, some of those guys who come by your house in black pants and white shirt wearing, riding a bike or uh, some other people come by with a little green book, and listen, they don't believe that about Jesus. Man, you take them to the word of God right there in Romans 9. He is God. Okay? Now, let's keep going. Anyway, that was a little side for you. You don't have to pay extra for that. Now, the natural question, though, that arises after reading all of these, his love for the Jewish people, all these special privileges that they enjoyed, is this. How then did they miss the Messiah? How did they miss it? Why didn't they believe? I mean, after all, again, these are the covenant people of God. They've been given far more blessing and privileges than the Gentiles. However, the greater privilege that greater privilege made them more accountable to God, not less. And, and we're, gonna come, we're gonna keep coming back to this, and I think this is what applies to us today, but just let's, let's lay the groundwork right now. They believed that they were saved and secure 
simply because they were the circumcised descendants of Abraham. And I'll I'll be explaining that, but just pay attention to that. But they failed to understand that being Abraham's physical descendants did not automatically make them his spiritual descendants. In fact, Paul hit the same thing, if you remember back in chapter 2, when he wrote, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. In other words, and this is where it hits home for us today, outward acts don't make someone a Jew any more than baptism or communion or church attendance make you a Christian. It's your heart and your personal faith, not your, not your heritage, okay? It's a personal relationship with God, not religion. You see, I think we have a stake in this as well today. Because somebody could easily come along today and say, hey, well, you know, if God rejected Israel, how do you know he's not going to reject you too? You know, if God set aside all those promises that he made to Israel, how do you know that he's not going to change his mind and set aside his other promises that you claim? So again, the the natural question is so, well, do they have a case? Back then, 2,000 years ago, and now, has God canceled his promises? or altered his purposes regarding Israel, and will he do the same thing with you and me? So Paul emphatically answers that question by saying, no, no, absolutely not. And here in chapter nine, he gives us four reasons that I want us to look at today why Israel's unbelief doesn't violate God's plan. And I think it applies to us today as well. That's what we're going to talk about. Number one, if you're taking notes, Israel's unbelief is not inconsistent with God's promise. With God's promise. That's what we're dealing with in this chapter. Israel's unbelief. Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So again, how do you explain that? You know, again, you know, it's one thing for them to fall short of the glory of God just like the rest of us do. But what about this special relationship? What about all these promises God made to them? Well, Paul's answer is short and to the point. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. Even though Israel had failed, even though many of them, most of them, in fact, had rejected Jesus, the word of God had not failed. Look at verse 6. Well, then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. In other words, again, simply being a Jew by birth doesn't guarantee your salvation. Now that's what they were banking on. They just assumed that their salvation, their security, was based on the fact that to a person, they could literally trace their heritage back to Abraham. And Paul said no. Look at the first part of verse 7. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. Again, when it comes to your salvation, the issue has never been who are your ancestors. You know, whether or not you were raised in a Christian home, whether or not your parents are Christians, the issue is your personal faith. It's interesting what Paul says in Galatians 3, 7. Listen to this. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. In fact, in other words, the real Israel is the Israel of faith. Now, this is really interesting. So then, who are 
the children of Abraham. Who are the true children of Abraham? Look at Galatians 3.29. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of of Abraham. If you grew up in children's church, uh, singing songs, you remember Father Abraham had many sons. I don't know, I won't say. Anyway, um, but that, but you are, you are. He said, you are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. That's what he's saying here in Romans. You know, the fact that the majority of Israel was in unbelief did not compromise God's promise because God never promised salvation simply to every descendant of Abraham. And then Paul gives two proofs of that uh, from the word of God. Uh, the first one is uh, Isaac in verses uh, 7 and 9. And, you know, think about this for a second. Of the eight sons that Abraham physically had, only one of them was chosen. Isaac. Isaac then has two sons. Anybody remember their names? Jacob and Esau. Okay, we need to go back and read our Bibles again. Um, verses 10 through 13, that's what he talks about. And of those two, Jacob and Esau, God chose who? God chose Jacob. Why? We don't know. In verse 11, Paul's explanation is that God chooses people according to his own purposes. And you'll see that a lot in chapter 9 here about the, the sovereignty of God. In other words, he just says, hey, God's sovereign. He knows better than we do, and he chose Jacob. Now, that leads right into the second point that Paul makes. Number two, Israel's unbelief is not inconsistent with God's person, okay, I'm a pastor, I like to alliterate, so we're sticking with the letter P, okay? But what I mean here is God's character, okay? God's person, his character. Israel's unbelief is not consistent by that. So after having made the point that Jacob and Isaac are children of the covenant simply because of God's sovereign choice, Paul knew that somebody was gonna raise the, an objection and say, hey, but wait a second, that's not fair. I mean, that's not fair. So again, the person of God is at stake here, the character of God. Look at verse 14. Are we saying then that God was unfair? So again, is God being unfair because he chose Isaac over Ishmael? Is he unfair because he chose Jacob over Esau? What does Paul say? Of course not. In fact, he uses the strongest language that there is, uh, the strongest negative that there is in the Greek language. He's basically saying, no, 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 absolutely not, not then, not now, not ever. So how do you explain God's sovereignty here, his choice? It's interesting, Paul doesn't. He just quotes scripture. You know, verse 15, for God said to Moses, and then he quotes uh, Exodus 33, 19. Uh, same thing in verse 17, for the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, and then he quotes Exodus 9, 16. So instead of, you know, giving a detailed philosophical essay on the mind of God and the choice of God and election and predestination, and, and uh, Paul simply quotes scripture. One passage dealing with Moses and the other passage dealing with Pharaoh. Now, you might be wondering, but why? You know, why didn't God go into more, why didn't Paul go into more detail here about the ins and outs of election and, and God's sovereign choice? You know, things that theologians have been discussing and debating for, for years. 
I'll tell you why. Here's the simple answer. Because our minds can't handle it. You're not God, neither am I. It's what the prophet Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I mean, let's, but let's personalize it this morning. I mean, let's bring it home to, to you and I. God chose you. I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, that's what the Bible says. God chose you. Why? Because you're such a good catch? No. You know? Because you're, you're, you're just too wonderful to pass up. Nope. Now, we know that as a believer in Christ, man, we are beautiful. We are perfect in the sight of God now. We have been dressed up in the clothes and the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, but we didn't have anything to do with that. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship. We're his work of art. And he takes the, the dust of the earth and he creates something so beautiful. He is the potter in control, in charge, and we're the clay. In fact, that's the, the, the other illustration that Paul uses here in Romans. Now, the reality is there are some very difficult verses here in Romans 9 to understand. I know I'm not going into to depth into all of them because the emphasis here is simply on God's sovereign choice. And sometimes we bristle at that. We do. But then what's interesting is you get to chapter 10 and we hear everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And anyone who believes in him will never be disgraced, never be put to shame. And so this balance between God's sovereign choice and man's responsibility to believe is seen all throughout the Bible. Uh, the great preacher from another generation, Charles Spurgeon, was once asked, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God with the responsibility of man? And he simply said, I never try. Why reconcile friends? Why reconcile friends? Paul saw no contradiction between Romans 9, the sovereignty of God, and Romans 10, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And neither do I. That leads us to number three. Israel's unbelief is also not inconsistent with God's prophets, with the prophets of the Old Testament. You see, the Jews were continually accusing Paul of basically turning his back on the Old Testament prophets, walking away from, from Moses and, and the other prophets, and, and just, you know, because he went to the Gentiles. They saw him as a defector, as a traitor. And uh, the prophets had taught that God had this everlasting plan for Israel. So many of the Jews were now saying, hey, Paul, if what you say is true, then that must mean that all of God's prophets were wrong. Well, to answer that question, Paul simply quotes two of their own prophets, Hosea in verses 25 through 26 and Isaiah in 27 through 29. By the way, I think this is worth noting here because we've already seen it, and I think we need to be reminded of this. Whenever Paul wanted to make a point, wanted to answer a question, he goes directly to the Scriptures directly to the Bible. 
I think we need to be reminded to do the same thing. You know, what Calvin might have said, or Luther, or Joel Osteen, or Stephen Furtick, or whoever, is not nearly as important as what God has already said in his holy word. And that goes for any preacher or teacher, including me. You know, my teaching only has value insofar as it conforms to the written word of God, period. Let's keep going. Verses 25 through 26. Listen to this. This is from Hosea. Again, one of their prophets. Those who were not my people, I will now call my people. I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Wow, that's one of their own. So what's he referring to? Well, you need to know a little bit of the backstory of Hosea. Hosea's a prophet, and his life was crazy. I mean, it was a living illustration that mirrored what was going on at the time in the nation of Israel. Hosea's wife, Gomer, was an unfaithful prostitute, okay? But she does give Hosea three children. And in Hebrew, the names of their children meant this. Listen, these are, these are their names and what they meant in Hebrew. Scattered, no compassion, and not my family. Man, that's pretty terrible, right? But, but they served as an illustration of God's attitude toward an adulterous, rebellious people. And he used Hosea to make this point that apart from Christ and, and God's grace, we today are in the same position that Israel was in the time of Hosea. Scattered and conquered by sin, lost and in need of compassion, and regarded by God as not my people. But in his mercy, God calls us to himself through Christ. And we become his children by our faith. We become sons and daughters of Abraham through our faith. However, only a small number believed. Just a few. And that's why Paul turns to Isaiah, verse 27. Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. What's a remnant? My wife is a seamstress, a sewer, so I know what a remnant is. It's not the whole thing, right? It's just, it's just a small piece. And that's what Isaiah was saying. He's crying out, cried out to the nation of Israel that though their number was like the sand on a beach, enormous, only a small remnant would believe and be saved. Verses 28 and 29. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of, of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. In other words, if God had dealt with Israel the way he dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah, there'd be nobody left. But a few did believe. And so God preserved a remnant so that his promises to Israel would still be fulfilled. So again, Paul's just building a case. He's answering these questions that the Jewish people had in mind. So he demonstrated that Israel's widespread belief, you know, is not inconsistent with God's promises, you know, that he had made. 
in Scripture with his person, with his character, or with their own prophets. But there's one more that you'll see in this passage. Number four, Israel's unbelief is not inconsistent with God's prerequisite, his prerequisite. Now, so what was that? What was the prerequisite? It was faith. Look at verse 30. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standard, they were made right with God. And it was by what that this took place? By what? By faith. He says, you know, basically he's saying that, okay, the Gentile people who never, as a, as a way of life, you know, as a people, they never tried to pursue a right relationship with God. But they got one by their faith, by believing. And so that's what he keeps coming back to. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what he's been emphasizing throughout this entire letter. We are justified by faith. That's the human response. And so Paul tells, tells us that those Gentiles have obtained a saving relationship with God because they believed. On the other hand, look at verse 31. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. Let me ask you a question. I want you to put your thinking caps on this morning. What do you think is the greatest obstacle to salvation? I mean, let's go back. Think about the people in your own life, people that you know, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, people that you pray for, you have that burden for that we talked about. What is the greatest obstacle to them personally being saved? You know, you might say, well, it's the, you know, materialism and the culture that we live in, the, you know, the, the carnality of the world, um, you know, uh, all kinds of things. What, what do you think it might be? I, I've given it some thought. I think, I think it's self-righteousness. In other words, you won't get saved if you don't think you need to. You know, you don't, you don't, you know, you won't approach Jesus as the Savior and the Lord unless you think you need one. And that's exactly what hung the Jews up back then, 2,000 years ago. They thought they were already righteous on their own based on two things, their, their heritage, their background, and by keeping the law, doing all the things they had been doing. And you say, well, but you know, maybe they just weren't one of God's chosen. You know, God's elect, right? Because that's what he talks about some in chapter nine. Well, that's not what Paul says, though. In verse 32, he says, why not? Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting him. Listen to me carefully. The only thing you can do to be saved is to believe that you can do nothing to be saved. And so in faith, you throw yourself at the mercy and the grace of God found only in Christ. That's it. We're saved by believing, by trusting, not by achieving. The gospel message that salvation is a free gift from God that's available to anybody who would receive it by faith Truthfully, 2,000 years ago, it offended the Jews. And it offended them because it required mentally that they dump their dependence on their own self-righteousness. And that's why they rejected Jesus by, lar by and large because with such anger and such bitterness because they were offended because 
now all of their righteous deeds basically in their minds added up to nothing. Look at the end of verse 32 and and the beginning of verse 33. Paul quotes Isaiah again. Again, one of their own prophets. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in Scripture when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. So stop there again. For a lot of people, Jesus is a stumbling block, a rock that makes people fall. The New American Standard translates this, a rock of offense, offense. The idea is that Jesus gets in the way of people's own selfish pursuits. And so when Christ came, he caused the Jews to stumble because of their self-righteousness. Again, they considered him to be a rock of offense. And my point is today, and I think what the word of God is trying to tell us is that 2,000 years later in 2022, nothing's changed. Jesus still continues to offend and cause a lot of people to stumble. I mean, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But look at the end of verse 33. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Anyone. I mean, you read through chapter 9 of Romans and all this talk of God's sovereignty of the election and his choice. How in the world does that get into Romans chapter 9? Anyone, you know, who trusted him will never be disgraced. That's the, 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 the beautiful balance here. Anyone who trusts in him. And so as we come to the end of this chapter today, I, I want to leave you with a couple of lessons. And I know we've been hitting on this throughout, but I, I just want you to get this today. I got two things I want want to close with. First of all, this. You can sit with God's kids and still not be one. You can sit with God's kids and still not be one. I mean, it's possible to be numbered among the people of God and not be one of his children. You say, yeah, but Pastor Chris, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I do good things. I hang out with good people. You know, listen to me. (laughs) Going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to Chick-fil-A makes you a chicken sandwich. If that's true, Scott Huff would be one. He would. It just doesn't work that way. That's what he was trying to tell the Jewish people. And then secondly... Your family can't save you. Your family can't save you. Yeah, you know, but Pastor Chris, my parents, they're good Christians. They're good people. You know, I was baptized when I was a baby. I was raised in a, you know, in a good Christian home. I went to a Christian school. Those are all good things to be grateful for. But they don't save you. They don't. Any more than Ishmael or Esau can say, well, I'm an Israelite because I'm a son of Abraham. They weren't. That's what Paul was saying. Salvation, you going to heaven, you having a relationship with God, it only comes through personal faith. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless you, you are born again. 
you cannot see the kingdom of God. So what about you? Have you been born again? Listen, don't let your self-righteousness keep you out of heaven. You are a sinner in need of a savior. I don't care that you're a good person. God doesn't care. Good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And you you won't get forgiven unless you realize you need to. And the thing that's keeping you from admitting that is self-righteousness. Your background, your family, your heritage, it's not gonna save you. You must be born again. That's what chapter nine is all about. You can do that today. You can do it right here, right now. It can happen anywhere, anytime, any place. but why not now? It is as simple and as beautiful as a humble, repentant prayer. You can pray it now. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you today for your word. Thank you for the reminder that um, we are your children, not because of our family, not because of what we've done or who we are as individuals, but because of your grace in your mercy through our faith in Christ, we are adopted into your forever family. And listen, if you are here today and you are ready to come home, you're ready to be marked among God's children, you're ready to be forgiven, you can do it right now. Just humbly pray something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I admit it. I have blown it. I have messed up. I I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And today, I believe that one has been provided. It is your Son. It is Jesus. And today, God, I ask him to come into my life I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I believe that he went to the cross for me. I believe that he rose from the dead and he is alive. And God, for the rest of my days, until you call me home or come again, I just want to follow Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have already humbly bowed the knee and we've been adopted into your family, God, open our eyes and our hearts to see a lost and dying world the way you do. May we feel that same burden that Paul had and may we reach out and love and serve and invite and share. Invite people to come to a place where they're gonna see Jesus, where they could meet him and come to know you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.